Good morning, everyone. Today we continue our study of Proverbs. We will be picking up in chapter 3 where we left off. Before we jump back in, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so just by way of very brief review, if you want to flip through your Bible with me, flip through Proverbs with me, of course, chapter 1 is the introduction, with chapter 1, verse 7, being a thesis and a recurring point throughout the text. Chapter 1, verse 7 reads, The fear of the Lord, or the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge. So that has been foundational and has been a recurrent meditation. What came after, verse 8 through 19, is the first address to a son. So the most common vehicle or motif for these early chapters of Proverbs is this wisdom from a father to a son. At chapter 1, verse 20, we have a new section, and that is a first poem about wisdom. It's going to be the first of three, and we covered that. And then that goes to verse 33 in the end of chapter 1. Then chapter 2 was a second address to a son, and again, there are ten in total. So a second address to a son, and that goes chapter 2, verse 1 through 22, so the whole of chapter 2. And then chapter 3, where we are today, is the third address to a son. And we went in quite a lot of depth and detail into the first five or so verses last week. So I'm going to read through those quickly and then we'll be off and running. This section goes from verse 1 through verse 20, this third address to a son. My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days, years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love, we talked about that, the kased, which is usually and often. Um, the cassette or steadfast love of God toward us, but here it's a little bit different. The cassette of Yahweh, the, the loving kindness of Yahweh endures forever. Here, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And we talked about how maybe in plainest terms, it's let not mercy and truth forsake you. And we spent a lot of time talking about the importance and relevance of that verse for us today, where of course we're swimming in a sea of lies and truth is ever in danger of forsaking us and the harder we cling to that truth there's a tendency then to neglect mercy and to have mercy and truth uh, be ours and to let them not forsake us rather bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart it's the same language used for when god writes his 10 commandments on the stone tablets let the commandments of the father be written upon the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of god and man again these are general truths general promises and of course there are exceptions And we always want to, as we read the scriptures, meditate on Christ. And we can see in Christ already some kinds of ways in which these Proverbs are absolutely true for him. And ways in which um, we can see him as an exception to some degree. That is, um, we might challenge the idea that he had good success in the sight of God and man. Well, certainly God, but was it not man that put him to death? Indeed. And even that view, though, is nuanced because now he's risen and his church praises and proclaims him and the day is coming when every knee will bow whether those knees want to bow or not and every tongue confess (laughs) so 
there's always a way in which we can engage with these texts and wrestle with them and let them challenge us, even if we've come to find that it's a rather superficial reading on our part that then is challenged. And that is precisely the way to engage with the wisdom literature of the Bible and with Proverbs in particular, is to wrestle with these things, to be as Jacob wrestling with God, to uh, chew on these things, to switch metaphors, and uh, to inwardly digest them and have them become well understood and part of us. So, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. My guess would be we spent most of the time last class meditating on that theme uh, because it is so foundational, so important. It is in many respects uh, the most concise statement you have as to the nature of theology or how to do theology. To set aside one's own understanding to receive the wisdom of the Lord, to trust in that wisdom of the Lord with all your heart, and then to use understanding in a, in a ministerial way, in service to that truth and wisdom that God has given to us. And I pointed out 1 Corinthians 1, if you want St. Paul's meditation on this theme. Uh, perhaps we'll even have time at some point in this class to flip forward and look at that, but don't intend to do that right now. All right. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, this is a general truism, but I think the biggest difficulty we have with this kind of statement is the application of it in our own lives. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It's easy enough to say, okay, yeah, I'll do that. But what does that actually look like? I have no idea. This is where it can be very helpful to remember the scriptures teaching on the theology of a day and how then the church and especially Luther and his small catechism have interacted with that concept. So we are given, man is given to live one day at a time. Remember what our Lord says, do not worry about tomorrow, sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Now, is Jesus precluding us from all future planning? No, obviously not. But there is a sense in which he is calling us to focus on our lives as lived daily. The, when you rise in the morning, and here as the catechism teaches, as the church has taught for centuries and centuries before the small catechism, you rise and make the sign of the cross, invoking the name of God. You're remembering your baptism. You're remembering the death of Christ for you. You're remembering who you belong to and who you are in this world. You're also remembering your mortality. And that's part and parcel of that making of the sign of the cross and invoking the name of God as you're saying, I have awoken because the Lord has awakened me. That's it. I'm only here because he has me here. What business would he have me do? And then we've talked in the past too how it's very concrete when you live from that opening morning invocation and you say the Lord's Prayer or maybe you have time to say the Ten Commandments and the Creed and the Prayer. You move from one prayer to the next. You move move from the morning prayer to the breakfast prayer. From the breakfast prayer to the lunch prayer. From the lunch prayer to the dinner prayer. From the dinner prayer to the prayer at the close of the day. So you're living prayer to prayer, engagement with God from engagement to God, and that gives you ample opportunity to confess your sins, the very real sins, and to change or correct, pretty much in the present tense, or at least the extreme near term, anything that needs to be corrected. And of course, at the end of the day, you again make the sign of the cross in remembrance of your baptism, remembrance that Christ has put the triune name upon you and you belong to him. And off you go into sleep, uh, trusting yourself to him. So to live one day at a time 
and to live from one prayer to another, all of a sudden this proverb, which is of course true, in all your ways acknowledge him, starts to become more concrete and more doable. And our, and our confession with God becomes less generic and less nebulous and more specific. I know, for example, between my morning prayer upon waking and my lunch prayer, exactly the ways in which my conscience accuses me. I don't just have to say, well, I'm guilty. Guilty of what? I don't know, just guilty. Well, I'm a sinner. Well, what specific sins do you have? I don't know. Uh, What are you confessing to God? My sin, singular. Now, all-encompassing, but what exactly? I have no clue. This isn't the kind of watchful life that we're called to as Christians. So to acknowledge him in all our ways becomes concrete when we're meeting with him in prayer regularly throughout the day and when our days are bookended in that prayer and really in that knowledge that when we close our eyes at the end of the night, we are commending ourselves into his hands. It is a mini death every single day. We're entrusting that he will wake us up. I know it can be jarring to um, non-Lutherans to hear the the prayer that's frequently prayed in, in our homes, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Why are you talking to children about death before bed? Because that's exactly the right time to. Every night is a practice of death. So that what? As our hymnists say, we will fear the grave as little as we fear our beds. Every night we practice death, entrusting ourselves into the hands of the Lord. Every morning we practice resurrection. And by the way, this sets us in tune with the cosmos. And it's Luther who says this. Of course, he's not the first, but he talks about the way in which the new creation has already interpenetrated the old. Apropos of my sermon uh, this morning, that if we engage our imagination, our ability to see with our minds, informed by the word of God, then we'll see that we don't properly live by the rising and the setting of this world's sun. We properly live by the dying and rising of Christ. We don't any longer live by the S-U-N, but rather by the S-O-N. And as Luther will say then, this this fallen world's son is the greatest preacher of Christ because every single day the S-U-N is preaching the death and resurrection of the S-O-N. So just work in terms of imagination here. Let me kind of speak loosely. As the sun sets, as Christ dies, we close our eyes and die with him. As the sun rises, Christ rises, we rise with him. Every day becomes a Christological, Christ-centered event. The glorious physical reality of the sunrise and sunset, in many ways amplifying the glorious reality of Christ's death and resurrection. Thoroughly biblical thought where the sun in many ways, the S-U-N, is compared to the S-O-N in our Psalms. And a way then of seeing uh, the new creation already breaking in and breaking forth. That even our daily lives are lived centered on Christ, him crucified and risen. Make sense? And you can expand that out to the week, you can expand that out to the year, but we'd be here doing a whole class on that for the next 30 weeks. Uh, So, all that to say that we can really flesh out and make specific a verse like, in all your ways, acknowledge him. 
in a way that this doesn't strike us as generic, like, yeah, yeah, sure, uh, but we can actually put some specifics down in place. We don't need to be legalistic about this. We don't need to uh, fabricate new laws or fabricate new sins. All of that's completely and entirely beside the point. The point is that in our ways, in our daily lives, in whatever way, shape, or form we find fits us and serves our neighbor, we can indeed acknowledge him and entrust that he will make straight our paths. Frequently, to our eyes, those paths look crooked. They look like nothing we would ever choose for ourselves. But we nonetheless have the promise that it is the path that God has chosen for us and it is the path that he himself is making straight. All right, let me pause there and see if you have any reflections on uh, verse 6 or anything that we covered last week that came before. Okay? Marching on then. Be not wise in your own eyes. So again, a statement of humility and somewhat parallel to do not lean on your own understanding of verse 5. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Again, echoing chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In verses like this, and there are countless in the scriptures, there's a kind of subtle and hidden comfort. I think often we read this say, and turn away from evil, and immediately we're struck in the heart of like, well, I haven't done that very well. But the beautiful comfort in verses like these is that if you had it right, the verse wouldn't be there. Right? If this wasn't a problem for God's people, then God wouldn't have bothered to pen this. That is to say, if you were already, if you had already turned away from evil, then there'd be no reason to tell you to turn away from evil. So by inference, we know that we have not turned away from evil and need this fatherly exhortation, instruction, encouragement. And part of that uh, turning away from evil is not to be wise in our own eyes. Okay, this goes all the way back to the beginning as most of the Bible does. But remember Adam and Eve, remember the temptation specific to Eve. God had said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So according to the word, according to what the ear hears, what's that fruit hanging there? Death. When looking at the account in Genesis, how is it that Eve sees that fruit? She looks at it, with her eye, sees that it is good for food. So with the ear, it's death. With the eye, it's life. That would be a perfect illustration of be not wise in your own eyes. She's sitting there going, well, I know the Lord told me it's death, but look at it. It's glorious. It's good. In her own eyes, she's wiser than the Lord, and her eyes are telling her exactly what is contrary to the word of the Lord. So here's the admonition. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, even when you're, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. (laughs) Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Because our eyes entice us toward evil, our thoughts entice us toward evil, and we say things all the time to ourselves like, well, I know God's word's against this, but... It looks like the right thing to do. It looks like the enjoyable thing to do. So here is, uh, there's more than meets the eye in terms of the nature of this warning. Uh, These three principles kind of wed together, not being wise in our own eyes, rather fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Turning away from our own quote-unquote wisdom. Then continuing on with this promise, verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is something we don't talk about enough because we don't know how to talk about it. We've lost a lot of the language and vocabulary for this. But take the word of the Lord at face value here. 
to not be wise in your own eyes, to fear the Lord and turn away from evil, has, according to the word of the Lord, healing and refreshment for us. So we're not often used to thinking in these terms, but here is one more reason to turn away from evil, that evil is going to make your flesh ill. And it's going to make your bones weary. That's why one of the names for sin is dissipation. And it's why the punishment of decay and death is so apropos of sin, because it diminishes, sickens, weakens, disintegrates. So to turn away from sin is not just something like, Here's an arbitrary rule that God has given me. I better keep it so I can be a good boy. Oh, it doesn't matter if I break it. I'm a bad boy. Christ died for bad boys. It's okay. This kind of superficial transactional way of thinking is a kind of mimicry of theology. There is, in a verse like this, a deeper reality depicted where to sin is to poison yourself and quite possibly to poison those around you. So then to turn away from that poison to the absolution of God and to the wisdom of God is then to receive healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Does that make sense? I know in young people um, who you know, sometimes tend to commit uh, larger and more serious sins because they lack restraint, because there's all kinds of biological and sociological reasons for that. When they cease from the sin, repent of it, receive that absolution, there is an immediate spiritual, psychological, physical sense of relief sense of thanks be to God, he's made me whole again. He's healed me again. He's restored that what is dissipated away from me. He's given back to me. I think without realizing it, in many ways, um, Christians who just sort of say, well, Jesus has forgiven me, so I'm going to live however I want, end up becoming almost ghost-like so dissipated, so disintegrated that, you know, almost in a way of leprosy, you don't even know how bad you are. It's killed the nerves off. So in this, we have a promise from the Lord that as we turn away from what is evil, turning toward him, he who is wholesome, he who is health, he who is life. And I think of this too in communion. This is the way the church fathers thought of it. They called the host, the body of Christ, they called this the bread of immortality. They viewed it as taking the Lord's Supper not only forgives your sins, but actually because it is, received, it is the physical body of Christ received in, on your physical body and into your physical body, there is actually a healing effect that takes place. And they made the same connection with the blood of Christ because the life is in the blood. Do you remember that from Leviticus? The life is in the blood. So to receive the blood of Christ is, is, you know, to receive a blood transfusion. To receive his life that restores life within you. There are healing properties there um, that engage with the body. So um, let, me, uh, let me give you, try to give you an example too. Because again, I'm not fully convinced we're used to thinking in these categories. Maybe they make us uncomfortable. Good. I hope the Bible makes us uncomfortable always. But when, you, uh, when you've done something and uh, maybe your conscience was telling you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you go after it and do it, and then the next day, all of a sudden, it hits you what you've done. And your conscience is after you. And you can literally feel like the pit in your stomach. You can literally feel the anxiety and gnawing washing over you. Does anybody No, nobody here is a serious sinner, so they don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, but if you've had any experience, 
even if only by degree like this, then you know what I'm saying. It is physiological, these things that you feel. It's in your gut. It's in your limbs. I'm fairly convinced that some of the epidemic of uh, quote-unquote depression is really an epidemic of dissipation. We've got people who are so strung out and dissipated spiritually, you can hardly even get up. And that's not recognized as a result of sin. You need a blood transfusion from the Lord. You need the medicine of immortality from the Lord. You need the forgiveness of sins, which penetrates and heals the heart. Create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. And that healing courses through us bodily, such that things like that pit in the stomach, the weakness of the limbs, the paralysis of the will, the stunting of the intellect, the distortion of the emotions start to become healed. This is a way the church used to think all the time, and it's probably a way we ought to uh, start thinking again. And I think it's a glorious promise, a glorious gospel promise that Christ holds out for us here, healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Okay, on to verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. A verse that really troubles some segments of Christianity where they have to scratch out wine and put in grape juice. Okay, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Remember who said that? So you serve God and mammon is second, or you serve mammon and God is second. But is God really second? No, Jesus pushes it even further. If you love mammon, you will despise God. You will see God as not worth much at all. Whereas if you love God, then you will despise mammon. You will see it as not worth much at all. And that kind of sentiment is reflected in a verse like this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Everything I have comes to me from the Lord. I am a steward. Properly speaking, it's not mine. I'm going to take the very best and put it back in service to him. The rest of it is going to be in service to me and my neighbors. The whole point of prosperity biblically is not so that you you can have a buffet at your dining room table every night, but rather so that you would have an abundance to share with others. You can see then that with wealth comes responsibility. Just the great statement of give me uh, the great statement of wisdom on this. Don't make me so rich that I forget you, or so poor that I curse you. Right in the middle, Lord, please. <laughs> uh, enough that I don't become profligate and wasteful. Um, keep. Keep it just under that threshold, um, but also enough that I may have some left over to be a blessing to those around me. And, you know, nothing, there's nothing that says you have to preclude yourself from that. It's nothing that says you immediately have to look outside your home. I mean, that can be the, your neighbors in your own home. But that's the kind of wisdom, the kind of middle ground that the scriptures are always setting forth. And here also, so um, you can think of Paul's example that. As one sows, sowing the seeds, so also one will reap. That principle at play here as well, that as you honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, produce that means the very best. And that also means you know, what you're gathering in first. There is a kind of act of faith there, by the way, in the first fruits. Because how we often operate is, all right, let's gather it all together. Let's see what we have and make sure we have enough. Now let's give to God. There is a faith implied in the first fruits where you say, this is 
what I've got. I'm going to immediately give the first fruits, and I'm not even going to worry if there's going to be enough left over because why? Because I trust the Lord. So there is an inherent act of faith in giving the literal first fruits of your produce. But here's the biblical promise that as you uh, sow, thus also you will reap, and that's the imagery in verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I love that it's wine too, because it's joy. I mean, God's not, God's not opposed to joy. God's not opposed to abundance. God's not opposed to goodness. We don't have to live like, uh, you know, monks. Um, that's not the point. Um, too much asceticism is uh, not helpful to you or your neighbor. And so to have full barns and vats bursting with wine is, is not a bad thing. It then just becomes a stewardship thing and a rejoicing thing. All right, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts. Love some dialogue. I couldn't help but think of Cain mm. when you were describing this and how he is the antithesis of all of this. He is someone who didn't give the first fruit, didn't have the faith, didn't trust that God would do for him, but saw what God was doing for his brother and then despised his brother for it. So a whole slew of issues come about as a result of not having faith and trusting in God and seeing that everything you have is a gift from God mm-hmm. and you are to be a steward of that gift, yeah. but it still belongs to him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And one of the tangential lessons we can have from that meditation is that comparison is the thief of joy. Now, tangential indeed, but I think apropos because um, if we're looking with our eyes set on God, everything you have is a gift from him. And it's to be received as a gift. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll say, insofar as I received it that way, it was wonderful. But then what happened? Well, the same thing that happens to me and all of us, you start looking at your neighbor. And all of a sudden, your joy in what you receive now becomes an exercise in comparison and an exercise in merit and an exercise in fairness. And before you know it, you've ascended to the throne of God. You've thrown him off. You're sitting up there. You're judging him for the way he's distributed his blessings, and you're judging your neighbor for their unworthiness at having said blessings. So, in many respects, then, uh, comparison, looking over at what your neighbor has, looking over at what your neighbor doing, is what ruins it all. (laughs) Keeping your eyes on God and giving thanks to him for what he has given is the most blessed way. Offering those first fruits, not looking over and being like, oh, what's my neighbor doing, you know? Uh, Offering those first fruits. So, thank you. Yeah, Cain, full meditation and great illustration for this point. Please. Esther, I wanted to ask you about the sense of sight, the sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, in this proverb and other places, I've wondered if sight is something to be more on your guard about than sound, um, just as a sense or just be on guard in general. But, um, you know, I've heard a lot of damaging words too, but I sometimes I just wonder if there's the reason that I think of the sun when I see the sun rising is because of the words that I've heard or if it's inherently there in the sunrise. So I don't, I'm not sure if I'm taking it too literally. But. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll answer as best I can and then let me know if I'm not quite hitting it. There is a, an antithesis in the scriptures between uh, sight and hearing. It's usually articulated like this. We live not by sight, but by faith. Okay? But faith is what? Faith is in the word of God. So God has said so. And then Luther's so great on this point that no sooner than God promises something, and Luther's thinking in Old Testament terms. He's thinking of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, Think very specifically about Abraham and Isaac. He's promised Abraham this miracle son. In Isaac, no sooner does he give that promise and give the promised son, than he immediately opposes that promise and says, now it's time to sacrifice him. It's this bizarre thing that God does where he makes a promise and then defies or attacks that promise. 
So that is an exercise of faith and his fatherly discipline by which he increases and strengthens faith. But the dynamic there is to not go by sight or by one's own reason, but rather to cling by faith to what God has said. And that's exactly what Abraham does in this case. Abraham has said, it will be Isaac through whom the offspring comes. So then Abraham insists that, all right, even if I have to slay my son, and he tells the servants who are left behind with the donkey, we will return. Even if I have to slay my son, I know that God will raise him from the dead because his promise and word must be true. So I think in a story like that, you can depict these two things, like faith versus sight, Um, That would be a key aspect. In other cases, though, of course, it's word versus word. You've got the word of God versus the word of the devil. Did God really say? You know, that kind of thing. So there's always a thesis and an antithesis. There's always what God's doing and what the devil through our fallen senses is trying to do. Does that help make sense somewhat? Okay. All right, great comment. Thank you. Anything else on this, uh, this point? All right, let's go a little further then. So, verse 11 of chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Your study note in your Lutheran study Bible on verse 11 points out that this word discipline is the Hebrew musar, correction or instruction. And the editors go on to say, through punishment and correction, parents chasten their children with the goal of teaching them. This is evidence of love and distinguishes discipline from simple punishment, which may only have the goal of curbing or preventing bad behavior. All right, so we learn from a text like this that the Lord does indeed discipline his children and he reproves his children. And what is anticipated is that we would despise this or become weary of it. So do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Why? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. Now this is a really strange theology. And is a theology that's difficult enough to assert. And even more difficult to believe and apply. This in many respects is the art of understanding the theological nature of your own suffering and the suffering of those around you. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. So his, repro- his reproof of you, his discipline of you, is proof of his love. In fact, there is a sense in which the more suffering is laid upon you, the more deeply he is loving you and trying to conform you into his own image. So, this is a very, uh, it takes time to wrap your mind around this. It takes time to be willing to embrace this. It takes time to understand what God is doing even if your heart and emotions never quite go along with it. But that is that God will frequently lay suffering upon us inviting us into his own suffering and into a deeper knowledge of who he is and how he loves. Um, I hesitate to give concrete examples of this because outside of an actual like context of pastoral care, they tend to ring hollow and they tend to not give enough space to process. Uh, so I'm going to 
not do that, even though I can think of a handful of examples and ways this is true. I'm going to not do that. I am going to assert just the general principle that if you meditate long enough upon your suffering, you're going to find it in the Son or in the Father on the cross. And if you add this principle to it, that the Lord reproves him who he loves, you're going to see how it is that the Father is conforming you into his own image, into the image of his own Son. And in this respect, you're going to come to that peculiar theology of John, which of course comes directly from our Lord. What does Jesus refer to as his glory in John's gospel. Suffering. His suffering is his glory. In afflicting his children, God is glorifying his children. That's a mystery that can only be fleshed out through the cross, and through the understanding that as he chastised his son, who was without sin, so he chastises us in order to conform us into the image of his son and into his own fatherly image for all eternity. Thus, the suffering is in fact glory, glorifying. Let me, uh, let me give you a concrete example of this theology spelled out in New Testament terms. I mentioned that these verses and the sentiment thereof are quoted directly in Hebrews 12. Let's put a bookmark here in Proverbs 3 and go over to Hebrews 12. And I want to show you a really visceral point of the language used in Hebrews 12. All right, at Hebrews 12, let's just pick up at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Who are we talking about? Jesus. And what hostility? Of course, his passion and crucifixion. So the author of Hebrews sets the stage with us having our hearts and minds meditating upon the suffering of Jesus. Consider, meditate upon him who endured from sinners, from the just, no, from sinners, such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When what? When you're afflicted. When sinners and evildoers afflict and torment and show hostility to you. Don't get angry, don't lash out in vengeance, but rather consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So as you are afflicted by others, you are turning toward Christ. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This, rather, in the context of Hebrews, has to do with apostasy. And you haven't struggled to the point at which your blood is the price to retain the faith. So it's a little bit of a check. Whatever it is you're suffering, you have not yet suffered in the way of Christ or the martyrs, is the sense. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now quoting from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly, you can see how that's euphemistic for despise, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and What's the English word? Chastises. That is a weird interpretation. Where does it come from? 
Mastigao is in the Greek, and if you look around, it's the same word that's used in John 19 for the scourging of Jesus. So what is the author of Hebrews doing? Interpreting the language of Proverbs in light of the scourging of Jesus. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. In the first place, see Christ there. And scourges every son whom he receives. And you think, I don't know, a loving God wouldn't do that. Well, that's a challenge to your understanding of love, and it's a challenge to your understanding of God. And there's something much deeper there. So again, what would Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I don't know. That doesn't sound like the kind of father I would be. Yeah, well, maybe not. But that's the kind of father your heavenly father is. Well, I don't know. That doesn't sound very loving. Well, maybe you should not lean on your own understanding of what loving is and open your heart and mind to something deeper. You're going to discover a God who loves more deeply and more fiercely than we are comfortable with. You trust him. Christ trusted him. Christ trusted him in much more difficult circumstances. Would you also be conformed into the image of Christ? Or would you be conformed into the opposite of Christ? Christ, say we all. And so then this is the way. Not to regard lightly or despise the discipline of the Lord, not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, scourges every son whom he receives. All right, I'll go just a little further. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. When a, when a father disciplines his son, he doesn't do so merely to be punitive, merely to stop said behavior. He's actually trying to conform the son into a closer resemblance to himself. That's what's inherent here. When it is written, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He wants you to be as he is. That's glorification. So through suffering, glorification. Indeed, glorification and suffering are one. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Yeah, maybe after you moved out of the house and spent a few years thinking about it, but indeed in time we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, namely our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may Share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And that's the precise reason why I hesitated to go into any concrete examples. If you come uh, set an appointment with me and, and want to talk to me about your suffering, I'll be happy to uh, go deeper and more detailed into this theology with you. But superficially, For the moment, the way it feels, the way we experience it, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God loves you as a son. He's happy to have you as his son. But he wants you to be better than you are now. And that's true for all of us. And that's precisely because he is a loving father. He is a God who loves. 
And he would not have us go into heaven as we are, but as greater than we presently are. This is a way that the, church, the teachers in the church have thought of heaven as if you only receive light discipline from the Lord, you can think of it analogous to being like a, uh, as, the, as the potter with the clay makes a, makes a small vessel. And you can go into heaven as a small vessel and the Lord will pour out the wine of gladness and you will be filled to the brim and filled to overflowing. In that way, you differ from no other vessel. Every vessel is filled to the brim and overflowing. Heaven is heaven for all. But as the potter works the clay, no matter how painful that might be to the clay, you become a larger and larger vessel with which to receive his grace and mercy forever. So would you rather be you as a vessel this big? You're still going to be, it's, heaven's still going to be heaven. Or would you rather be a greater vessel with greater capacity with which to receive his love and mercy and holiness? All of us aspire to have more and more of the Lord, to be conformed ever more into Christ our Savior and to receive the fullness of the gifts therein. And that's the joyful encouragement of what it is that the Father is doing with his Son, that the potter is doing with the clay, how he's fashioning and glorifying us precisely through pain and suffering that we endure in this life, drawing us closer to himself and giving us a greater glory than we ever would have experienced before. And here's kind of the kicker, a greater glory than we ever would have chosen for ourselves. Exactly how much suffering are you okay with? For me, it's zero. I don't want any of it. And the second it happens, I take a Tylenol or I start complaining. If I had my way, I would be, I don't know, one of those really tall shot glasses. That's it. No suffering, just a tiny little... Thankfully, God is so gracious, He overrules my short-sighted foolishness, and He gets to work at expanding that cup because he knows that as we move into eternity, we will give him thanks and praise. And we will give him thanks and praise not only for the blessings, but perhaps especially for the crosses and the afflictions. The Lord be with you.